Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Dwell is an audio Bible app our family recently discovered, and now we love it. Dwell's mission is simple, to help you get in the Word and stay in the Word. And I think that is the ultimate practical application for intentional living. Visit dwellapp.io savvy to get a 20% discount today. Dr. Clarence and Brenda Schuler are my guests today. Their ministry is called Building Lasting Relationships, and today we're going to zero in on topics related to three main relationships, marriage, parenting, and work. They're going to teach us how to follow the biblical commandment to love God and love others well in each of these areas. Here's our chat. Greetings, Schulers, and welcome to the Savvy Sauce. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, I'm so excited for our time together. And I just want to start here with your stories. So how did both of you meet Jesus and each other? So I grew up in what I call a religious family, where we went to church regularly and tried to you know, do what was right. It wasn't until, well, and even during that time, I remember going to a church where the typical Sunday morning end of service included the pastor offering some invitation to people to come join the church or get baptized. And I told my mom I wanted to be baptized. And she said, well, you need to be a Christian for that. And her explanation of what a Christian was, was more what we had been living. Be good. Don't fight with your sister. You know, do what's right. And she lost me at the don't fight with your sister part because I just didn't think that was possible. So I kind of put that idea on the shelf for a little bit. And then we moved to another location and started attending a different church where I heard the gospel that Jesus died for my sins and and loved me and, and wanted a relationship with me and that I needed to ask him into my life and that, you know, forgive me of my sins and that that's what being a Christian really was about. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I can do that. And so that is where my salvation journey began. I was probably 13 at the time and just got involved with the youth group and learned and grew and proceeded my Christian journey from there. Well, I um, I grew up at a time when things were pretty segregated, but also, too, I was a, I was a, I was a drug baby. And my parents drugged me to church the oh time doors were open. <laughs> and, and so I hated going to church. It's before, you know, DVDs and DVRs and all that stuff like that. And our culture, at least my particular culture, if you're in church all day, it was okay. And so we'd be missing most of the football games, pro football games on Sunday. But uh, a friend of mine went to an integrated school and some girls from the school he went to invite him to a church. And they asked me to go kind of protect him because he was real short and I was his bodyguard because he was only four feet, seven or eight. And I was about an inch taller. <laughs> but he went to this church that was predominantly white. And I met this guy on a basketball court named Gary Chapman. And I watched his life for a period of two years. And after that, I realized I needed something he had that I didn't have, which is Jesus Christ. And so when I was 16, uh, Gary introduced me to, to Jesus Christ. And that's how I came to the Lord. Wow, that's incredible to hear from both of you. And then when did your paths intersect with one another? You want to go first? <laughs> first, is not there's a different story? There's always a different story. She can tell her first, and I'll tell the correct one. <laughs> well, the one and only story that I can think of is that as my journey in faith increased and grew in college, I went to the University of Michigan, got involved what was then Campus Crusade for Christ, and went to one of their Christmas conferences and just felt convicted to get into some type of Christian ministry. And it was 
at that point, I talked to my pastor back home and he said, well, you're going to prepare for the vocation that you want. You need to prepare for your mission journey as well. And he suggested that I continue my education at seminary. So I said, okay, trusting him. I went where he told me to go and ended up at Southwestern Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Got there and started in a January semester and met this young, handsome Clarence Schuler. Wow. And that's where our journey began because <laughs> he was already there. <laughs> it was her first semester, my last semester, and uh, it was just really nice. I noticed her and I noticed her hairstyle and she was very classy and a little bit sassy. And we uh, we started meeting there and really at probably a third date, I knew that felt God saying, this is the one you're going to marry. Even though I didn't tell her that, but it was just really kind of neat seeing her, meeting her and, and her passion for missions meant a lot to me because I traveled overseas playing basketball and sharing the gospel. So that was a, that was a real big deal for me. And so uh, it was just great meeting her and getting to know her. And then Clarence progressing with the story, how did God transform your misery into your ministry? Well, my misery actually happened uh, after I met Brenda. We were separated uh, for a while, for, for about a year or so. And I was in ministry. Before we got married. Before we got married. And I was in ministry and I was by myself. And it was, as long as I was sure, I got addicted to pornography. And it just really had a real hold on me, and it was a real struggle. And basically, I thought once we got married, we did get married a couple years later, and I thought, well, once we get married, that would end the pornography addiction, but it really didn't. But I eventually, we there was an event where people were just kind of confessing their sins. Henry Blackaby was traveling with another preacher, John Avant, and they were just really doing revival and no music, whatever, and you just share your, your sin. And so eventually I got up and shared my sin of pornography at our denominational office where I was at. And some godly men came and just laid hands on me and prayed over me. And it really just kind of broke the addiction. But then I hadn't planned to confess that. So then I had to go home and confess that to Brenda, which is the hardest thing I've ever done to tell this woman about my pornography addiction. And, and then after that, she graciously forgave me. And then after that, we began to, with her permission, began to share about my pornography addiction and God's deliverance. And I was amazed how it impacted couples, individuals, even pastors. It's just kind of been an amazing thing. And so I I think through the grace of God, I've been clean now about 27 years or so. I can't keep up, something like that. And and now I I help other people have victory over pornography. And, and, you know, when God delivers us, he always takes us further than we imagine. So now I'm also helping couples, Christian couples that have had affairs to uh, not just restore their marriage, make their marriage better than it's ever been. So that's, that's how I saw it turn that it from uh, misery into my ministry. I love hearing redemption stories. Thank you for being so open with that. And in case someone's hearing this and maybe they're in the midst of that struggle today or their spouse is, were there any lies that you believed that were helping you stay enslaved to that sin that maybe you could share in hopes of replacing it with some truth for them to hear? Well, yeah, you know, I think pornography for men, I can't speak for women who also struggle with addiction. It makes you feel good about yourself. You're totally focused on yourself. And I told myself because I wasn't involved with another human being, I wouldn't really hurt anybody and not realizing I was actually hurting myself. And the pornography could lead to actions where you'd act out. And even the acting out with your body would sort of enslave you further. And so it was just, and so those are lies you believe. And, but what finally got me out of it was I hated the cycle. It's not a sin to be tempted, but I would give into that temptation, enjoy it for a brief moment. As soon as it's over, feel guilty, condemned, shame, ask for forgiveness, but not feel clean. And then same as time went on, I'd feel better about myself. And so it was really, and it was hard accepting God's forgiveness because there's nothing I could do to earn it. I just had to accept it and believe that. And getting tired of the cycle was what really sort of broke me out of the habit. And so what I tell people is that I had to make a non-emotional decision about a very emotional temptation. That's good clarity. And Brenda, will you walk us through your side of that journey? You know, I... 
have people ask me this question frequently because Clarence is very open now in sharing his story. And particularly as we speak at conferences, it usually comes up pretty early on in the event. And because it is something that so many people are dealing with, frequently there are women who come up to me wanting to know, how do you deal with that? What, what helps do you have? And I feel like my journey is probably different from a lot of women's. I have friends who are still walking through this with their spouses. And for a lot of them, it's because they're still involved in that sin or there's, it still has some hold or grip on them. I feel like by the time I found out what was going on for Clarence, it really was pretty much over. So it wasn't a daily dealing with it kind of a thing for me. I didn't know anything about it prior to that. So it wasn't like I was walking through it with him at the time. The other thing is that Clarence was very quick to get involved with some other men with accountability. And they were people that he had run by me. There were people that I knew and trusted. There were people that I knew were checking on him. And so as he was traveling, as he was doing his day-to-day thing, I knew these guys were on his case. And so therefore, I didn't feel like I had to be. You know, my one question, not knowing anything about pornography, the addictions of it, I wondered, well, why was it necessary for you to go there for your satisfaction? Am I not enough? Am I not doing something right or adequately or or whatever. So there is that question. And that probably didn't linger too long because I recognize that's just one more ploy of the enemy to ingrain that thought in the partner. And I recognized pretty early on that with something like pornography, it really doesn't have anything to do with the other person. It wasn't necessarily about me. It was a sin that had gripped him and that the enemy was using. And that was really impressed upon me later on when there was a news story of a very well-known supermodel whose husband was involved in pornography. And I'm thinking she's the one other men fantasize over, yet here he is struggling with that. And it just impressed upon me even further that it really wasn't about the other person. It was an addiction that needed to be dealt with as such. And so in that, I'd say my journey is probably a little different from others, but my encouragement to other, particularly women, is not to take on the guilt of that, not to embrace the shame of it, because typically it's not about them. And I think that's really true. Unfortunately, it's a very selfish thing. I think the pornography releases basically a drug and you become your own supplier, and it's very addictive. But and a lot of, it deals with sin, selfishness, a lot of insecurity. And so the best way to expose it is to uh, share with your spouse, and because sin loses power in the darkness. And so I, but I do encourage guys, and, and in my book, Keeping Your Wife Your Best Friend, I go into tremendous detail in one chapter. It's called Pornography, The Kiss of Death. And I, I share my self-seduction, how God delivered me, how to stay, keep the victory, and even some things your wife may be thinking. Uh, so I, I think that's really important to have that in the process that and deal with and deal with that particular sin. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Clarence, you've taught audiences before about understanding the heart of a man. So will you give us some insight into understanding men better? Yes. Uh, and, and really, I do this with co-ed groups, but I also do a lot with women. I've actually been invited to women's conferences and have been the only guy there doing this session. And it's really cool because women in general have better social skills than men. But very often women don't know men's core values. And, and to be honest, a lot of guys don't know our core values either until something happens. And we'll act out because that was a core value for us. But typically, a core value for a guy is we want to provide for our spouse. If a guy feels he's not providing for his spouse, if he loses his job, even though he may not have anything to do with losing his job, 
Why he's not being provided for his wife and his family feels less than a man. But he typically he's not going to come and tell his wife he feels less than a man. Another core values for us as men is that we want to protect our wife and family. That's very common. Those are core values. Another thing that we talk about that a lot of women don't know, because men are really, especially in our society today, really demeaned quite a bit. And so we need to know we're not crazy. And that's that's really important. I have guys call me, very successful businessmen call me and say, just tell me I'm not crazy. And that's kind of a big deal. And that's even multiplied probably 10 times more for men of color. And and I heard one wife say to her husband, say about her husband, she said, you know, in the world, he gets trampled on quite a bit. But when he's at home, I make him a king. And I thought that's really neat because she's a strong woman. But she chose to make him feel well at home and make the house a sanctuary for him. We need permission. Like a lot of times if our wives are going to an event and they ask us to go, we want to know what are the guys going? Is it safe for another guy to go there? So those are some. They're, they're about seven to ten that are really important for guys that we may never talk about to another female or to our wife, but it's really big for us. And I want to have you elaborate a little bit. You said, especially with men of color, they would struggle with that question, am I crazy? And can you give examples of what may be going on in their lives that leads them to ask that question? Well, it's, it's really difficult. Thanks for asking. But for us as people of color, particularly African-American men, you know, we can be really qualified for a job and not get that job. And, I, and we're not the only ones that happens to, but we feel often that happens. I, you know, to be, just be real, the police shootings, which are not new, but being filmed. And so now white America is aware of that. We've always had to deal with that. And so I, I was telling people one place I feel really like a second class citizen is when I'm pulled over by the police because I feel like there's a 50 50 chance I'm going to get away or not. You know, so there's a protocol you have to have to be safe. You can't ask why they're stopping. You can't get mad because you don't deal with the consequences. So. So those things are really tough. And just even in Christian communities uh, with Christian organizations that are predominantly white, it's difficult for men of color sometimes to advance. You have to sometimes be twice or three times as good. So it's it's a difficult deal. And so black men, men in general, but black men in particular, you know, struggle with depression. It's like I've written a book on depression and, and just my own battle with that is because you need that affirmation periodically. And that's why we're really grateful for our wives who are sensitive enough to help us walk with that. And and not that they become doormats or anything like that, but they, they help us and encourage us and affirm us. We need that. And men in general are much more sensitive than females think. And we do want to talk about things probably more with our wives, but it's got to be a safe place. So those are some, some key things that I just wanted to other two aspects I think women need to know or understand about men. Thank you for elaborating. And that is incredibly helpful to have that insight into men. And whether that gives a spouse or girlfriend clarity today on the man she loves, or maybe you just put into words what a man listening has experienced but never articulated. Now, Brenda, on the flip side, what are some things you believe that a man should know about a woman? <laughs> well, I would start by saying, just from personal experience, Uh-oh. people are different. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not just men and women are different from each other, but I think there are, there are men who are different from other men and women who are different from other women. And as we often speak at conferences and talk about these generalities, I will upfront admit, you know, this is probably true for most women, but for me, I fall into a lot of the more male characteristics, you know, as far as how I think and feel. And that in and of itself often gives people freedom to realize, okay, I'm not just the only one who's weird, or it's okay to be different. And so I will try to answer your question, but with the prefaces that we have to be careful of generalities and typical stereotypes and putting people in boxes and to say that all women are this way and all men are that way. And even like Clarence just said, you know, the stereotype that men are not sensitive. Well, as he just said, you know, they may be more sensitive than we give credit for. In our case, Clarence is the sensitive one in our relationship. 
he's the one who is, you know, more caring about the feelings. He's the one that will go into more detail in a conversation when I want to get to the bottom line, you know. And so I just throw that out there. But I would say that there probably are some overarching uh, things that men should understand about women. We always talk about the difference of women wanting to feel loved and men needing to feel respected. And I think that's probably a lot of truth in that. I, I think both need both. I think men need to be loved and women need to be respected. But I do think as far as the core values, love for women is a pretty high one up on the list. I think women need to know that they are valued and appreciated and, and cared for. I think that security is a primary value or need in women. And when I say security, that actually comes on a number of levels. There is the emotional security to know that we're okay in our relationship, to know that we're, we're going to work through this, we're, we're going to be okay. There is, of course, physical security. Are we in a safe place? Are the doors locked? Are, are we in harm's way? Are we physically safe? I think that's a, a value that a lot of women need to have. And then financially, are we financially okay? I mean, I know that we're not rich, never have been, probably never will be, but we're not going to lose our house tomorrow. You know, we're, we're in a financially secure place to where we're going to be okay. So I think security is is important. Women tend to be more relational than men. Now, again, Clarence is very relational. I mean, we will sit down on an airplane and he will strike up a conversation and he's got a new best friend before we land that plane. And, and I'm like, I'm pulling out my book and don't talk to me. So <laughs> we're very different in that. But for a lot of women, relationships are important and not just with the spouse, but with friend, girlfriends and family members. And so relationships are important. We like non-sexual hugs. I mean, we like sex too, but we like a just, you know, pass in the kitchen, give a hug. Doesn't mean it's going to lead anywhere. Doesn't mean it means anything. It's just, and I care about you. Here's a, a little quick hug. And so I think that's something that a lot of men need to understand that, you know, a hug, holding hands, whatever, isn't necessarily intended to, to lead to something more. It's just an expression of affection. Women do tend to be more holistic than men versus, and, and I'll use these terms and explain them, men being more compartmentalized. I think this has to do with the neurons and the wiring of our brain. And so for this, it's not necessarily, you know, a stereotypical generality. It's a scientific, a scientific neurological Supply. development. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is that a lot of women, not all, again, not all, but many women are capable of doing more things at one time. They are able to emotionally tie one thing to another. And they are, are able to just relate things and events and, and activities to each other, where for men, it tends to be more, okay, I'm at work, I'm working. When I'm done with work, that work box is closed, and now I can move on to the next thing. And we've had a fight, that fight's over, now we can move on to the area of sex. Amen. And, <laughs> and, and I think it's important for us to understand that, because if a woman is, you know, still tying the fight back to, you know, what happened that morning, she is not going to necessarily be ready for any kind of physical intimacy. And she's going to think her husband is insensitive. Whereas with him, he's thinking, okay, that's over and done with. That was this morning. That was earlier today. Why are you still holding a grudge and you're just being mean? So just to understand that there is that difference in approach to the way we handle things and and that the other person may not be carrying the the thoughts or the stereotypes that we're imposing upon them, but they're just wired differently. And if we understand that about each other, then we're able to talk through it better. That is such a great representation of both sides. And now a brief message from our sponsor. I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor. 
Dwell app. Dwell is an audio Bible app with loads of inspiring voices, Bible translations, and original background music. I think you're going to love listening to scripture through the Dwell app. You can start a daily habit of engaging with God through Dwell's many listening plans. They also have tons of scripture playlists, like ones based on mood. So no matter what you're feeling, you can immediately be comforted and encouraged by the Word of God. Playlists include, I'm feeling tempted, I'm feeling stressed, and I'm feeling ashamed. There are also sleep playlists, and those include gentle music to help you fall asleep to scripture. And one of the most requested features, a sleep timer, is now also available on Dwell. That means you get to fall asleep to your favorite books and stories of the Bible without losing your spot or draining your battery. So you can end your day with God's word in your ears and on your heart. You can even try it tonight. So to get started with Dwell, I want you to know that they're offering Savvy Sauce listeners an amazing deal. Just go to dwellapp.io slash savvy to get a 20% discount. That's dwellapp.io slash savvy for 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for the sponsorship. I think I always want to jump on any opportunity here to talk to Christian couples who are comfortable talking about sexual intimacy and marriage because I think, like you said, bringing it into the light is good and helpful and People have found this to be a safe place where those conversations can take place within a biblical worldview, so it's not crass or inappropriate. So for the two of you, being so happily married for decades now and being in ministry with couples, and you're both believers, what is some of your encouragement for sexual intimacy and marriage for both spouses? Well, I think what's important is to really talk about it, you know, with each other. I think also Brenda alluded to a lot of things, how we treat each other. You know, typically if you have a problem in the bedroom, uh, it's because you have problems outside the bedroom. And so you need to make sure you, you both feel safe with each other to talk about it because it's the most intimate thing that you can do together. I think also, I think even in our marriage, I'm learning more and more that our bodies really do belong to our spouse. And so it's really about bringing pleasure to them. And as you try and bring pleasure to each other, then um, you can have what we call maximum sex or mutually beneficial sex together. But but and in the, the sexual relationship typically is a sign of, of, of a healthy marriage. And, and, and so it's something you should do, I guess, frequently. But but you also need to talk and pray about it. And I, and I found a lot of friends, uh, couples we know, couples I've helped who've had affairs they said was really revolutionized their sexual relationship. They brought God back into the bedroom. And so some couples actually pray before they have sex and pray after they have sex. And so uh, since God created it. So I think I often say that communication is to marriage what location is to real estate. You got to communicate, 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 assume nothing and talk about everything. So I think that's really important that you do that and have that relationship. And the spiritual relationship between the two of you really impacts the, the sexual, the physical relationship. Yeah, I think that communication needs to include what you enjoy and what you don't. And along with that, to recognize that God did really create sex to be enjoyed. I mean, there are other purposes for it. And there's absolutely, you know, the procreation that comes out of it and and the companionship and other things. But enjoyment was one of the purposes. And to recognize that as a Christian couple, I think a lot of times in the church is made to seem illicit and dirty and, and, you know, crass, as you say, and and different things. And so to understand within marriage between the husband and the wife, there are things that are okay to be enjoyed and you need to talk about them. And those things need to be okay with both of you and they don't need to involve other people or any other things, but to just say, Hey, is this, is this something you'd like to try? And we can be a little bit adventurous in, in this area of our marriage. And so to be able to talk about those things, as Clarence said, and to be able to be open and honest with, you know, that, that thing over there that we just didn't mm, don't want to do that one again, you know, or, or whatever, 
it might entail. And so to be able to understand that, yes, this was something that God created to be a part of a relationship, understanding too, that there are sometimes physical things that prevent that. And then to not feel deprived or shameful or or whatever, those are cases. Talk to doctors, see if there are things that can be AIDS, but if, if not, to recognize it's not the end of the world. And then one more thing I would say on that, particularly among Christians, we are told, rightly so, so often, don't before you get married. And and we should not. That That is absolutely against God's plan. The problem comes when a young couple has heard, don't, so often, do not, no, 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 no. And then they get married, and all of a sudden, they're expected to flip this emotional switch and do all the time. Just do, do, do. And and I've talked to a lot of young women who have said that's a difficult switch to flip for them sometimes. And so I think we just need to understand as we're even presenting this message to our young people that, yes, we want you to wait, but not because it's dirty and ugly and, and you know, you're going to have a terrible time. No, we don't present that message to them. This is something wonderful to be looked forward to. But then when the time comes, it's something to be enjoyed. And so that's a message that I think older Christians need to be careful as we are, I think some people trying to scare people out of an activity when there needs to be a better messaging of, yes, this is to be enjoyed, but within God's parameters. And I think another thing, too, I just like to add to that. When I speak to men in men's retreats, sometimes older guys will be struggling to continue to, to please their wives. And sometimes medication, sometimes just age, whatever. And so I think those are issues, too, that men sometimes may feel less than a man if they think they can't bring pleasure to their wife sexually. And so they, but that's really all the more time they need to talk to their wives and just share where they are physically. Like Brenda said, talk to a doctor, but that's not uncommon. But it is common for guys not to talk to their wives about it. And then that creates a real problem because you just wonder what's going on. Uh, do you not want to be with me anymore? Stuff like that. So again, it's really important to have the communication and transparency and openness. Thank you so much for all that wisdom that you just shared with us. And I am happy to link in our show notes to quite a few other episodes. If a couple listening does want to learn more about this, we've approached sexual intimacy from the Bible's approach and with Christian sex therapists and doctors and the physical side and emotional side. And so I appreciate you hopefully leading people into being open to listening to other episodes. So we'll have those easy to link to. As a couple, what are some of your personal principles that have revolutionized your marriage? Some things that sort of come to my attention, I'll give you a few, I won't necessarily give you all, I call seven practices that revolutionized in my marriage. I think the first one is to read and pray, you know, and apply the uh, truths of the Bible together. I think that's huge. Uh, You know, our marriage is really a spiritual entity. And a lot of times we as Christians get blown away by the enemy, but we're not using the spiritual weapons we have, which is the word of God, prayer and the whole indwelling Holy Spirit. So that'd be the first one, simply reading and applying the truths of God's word together with couples. The second thing that I would recommend, well, the first one is reading. The second one is praying together with your spouse and all kind of research, secular and, and Christian have said that the most powerful thing a couple can do is pray together. Uh, Dr. Phil, with his research team, said that couples who pray together every day, I'm not talking about two or three hours, I'm talking about maybe five minutes, two or three minutes, five minutes. He said their chances of having a divorce are lower to one out of 10,000 couples. I mean, that's unbelievable. And it's not divorce insurance, but it's pretty close. Another practice that we talk about is trying to be a pleasure to your spouse, to whom you're married to. And and that's why I think for guys in particular, we need to be servant leaders, not dictators. And I think we need to really focus on that. And I know Brenda does that for me. She's really working on serving. So I'm I'm learning and working, trying to be better at serving. So just really being a pleasure to be married to. Uh, the next one I call developing a consistently adjusting attitude, because the longer you're married, Brenda, I've been married 35 years now. 
And we, you tend to change and you have to make adjustments. Or there's a time Brenda didn't work out of a home, but now she's an executive for a nonprofit. And so we had to make adjustments to each other. And then even when we communicate, I've noticed over the years, uh, we make adjustments. I noticed maybe after 25 years or 20 years, I started taking Brenda for granted, her looks, our intimacy. Just there, and I found myself saying things to her, not profanity, but saying things to her, talking to her in a way that's not necessarily honoring to God. And God just kind of got on my case one time through the Holy Spirit and just said, you know, when you were dating her or engaged her, you never talked to her that way. Or if she asked you to do something, you wouldn't have a hesitation in doing it whatsoever. And so the next practice really came about, uh, it said, I'm doing this because I love my wife. And, and it really became that simple. I'm doing this because I love my wife. You know, because I would see her at Southwestern on campus somewhere and I see her and I start singing, yes, Jesus loves me, you know, or or she would say yes to a date and I would just start singing. And then I got married and I, and I just became complacent and had to just really change the way I treated her. So those are some of the things, practices that are revolutionizing my marriage. I love those. And Dr. Clarence, if you do want to share the rest of your seven, I'm all ears. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, the other one we've sort of talked about, and it came from me working with couples that had affairs. And this is where I really learned a lot. Uh, one of my friends is Melody Fleming, and she co-authored a book called The Dance of Restoration, Overcoming Marital Infidelity. And she said as, as a counselor that a lot of times, you know, sexual intimacy is much more risky for the female than for the male. Because she said, as Brenda talked about earlier, some females have to open themselves up emotionally before they can open themselves up physically. And so this next practice of practice six is I just said this requires us as husbands to be sexually sensitive to our wives. And again, that's where the communication comes in, how we relate uh, the security Brenda mentioned, but also the foreplay. All those things are really important in that relationship that she really feels safe and that the sex act should be a celebration of us connecting emotionally, intellectually, socially, spiritually, and then physically. So those are really important. And so the last one is simply that understanding that your spouse may have been intentionally or unintentionally wounded by the parents or people in authority. And that could be that a wound may be emotional, verbal, or physical abuse. And there are also areas of degrees of abuse. And so without trying to be a counselor to your spouse, if there is like what you thought was a $1 offense, but their response to it is like $10, then you might want to ask at an appropriate time, maybe not in the heat of the moment, say, honey, you know, when that happened a day or two ago or earlier today, from my perspective, it's like you overreacted. Is it more to this than, than I realized? Have you been wounded in this area? And just by opening the door to have a conversation, uh, you may be able to heal or begin healing your spouse, consequently improving your marriage relationship. And again, does that make you a counselor or whatever? But if you wouldn't put that kind of work in, then I always think we all can have the marriage that we always wanted. Does that make sense? It does. And I love that posture for each spouse because it sounds like you're saying to assume the best rather than allowing ourselves to become really defensive and reactive. It's trying to approach with curiosity, assuming the best, and going back to what you've said, communication. Yeah, and, and if we can make it a safe place, then usually our spouse will want to talk to us. If we don't feel that we're condescending or judging or condemning, I, I think it makes it easier for them. So, so you're always sort of in a serving position. I like that. And Brenda, is there anything else you would want to add? Well, I think he's covered quite a bit. I think just personally, and, and they're not necessarily principles or, you know, a list of things that I have developed, but for me, it's important to be God-focused and make sure that everything that I say and do in my own life is what he wants me to be thinking, to be acting on. And as my focus is on him, then it's going to affect the way I relate to other people. The other thing is to you know, focus on my spouse and recognize it's not all about me. And, you know, this probably ties into something Clarence has already said, but I think as I go through my daily life, just because I have a thought or I have a feeling or a want or a need doesn't mean that's what has to happen. It may not be best for the two of us. And that's something that we've always said, 
even in the midst of conflict, it's what is best for the marriage, what is best not just for my wants or his wants, but what's best for the two of us together. And then the last thing I would say that I really try to pay attention to is that every thought that comes into my head does not need to come out of my mouth. And if I can just control my tongue sometimes, that will prevent an argument. I am not by any means saying I sweep things under the rug because I do not do that. But I am saying to just really try to pay attention to what's necessary. And even in dealing with difficult subjects, I'm not going to shy away from them. But is it really necessary? Is this the right timing for it? Is this something that I can just let go? And so just really trying to be aware of those things on a regular basis. Thanks to our friend Joy, the SavvySauce.com has been completely updated. And if you follow the Savvy Sauce on social media, you're already aware that we launched a new tab on January 1st titled Articles. I hope you check out these new Savvy Snacks, which are articles full of quick tips for intentional living. Check out these articles today or join our email list to have them directly delivered to your inbox. Enjoy! Now that we've covered marriage, it seems natural to also get to pick your brains on parenting. And then I want to go to a third important component of our lives, which is work and ministry. And specifically, I'll want to hear your thoughts on leaving a legacy and learn more about what you offer with diversity consulting. But first, let's talk more about parenting. What has your experience been like? (laughs) Well, we had three under the age of two, and so we had a lot of diapers. (laughs) But I I think for me as a guy, when the girls were born, we have all girls, the daddy gene just kind of kicked in. And it it was just really great honor to do that with Brenda, and uh, she was just amazing I think we had to make a priority that um, we sort of developed a a ministry calendar and a family calendar and the family calendar had priority over the ministry calendar, which I think was really important. Uh, But we tried to prioritize God and our relationship with each other. But as we loved our kids, I really made an effort to try and spend time with my kids individually, to pray with them, but also have that time with them. Just one-on-one, I thought was important. Uh, When I traveled, Periodically, I would take one on a trip with me, even though I got no rest that weekend or if I was gone, you know, because I finished my meeting, whatever I was doing, then I'd have to spend time with them. But we created some memories. And I think one of the coolest things, as my girls were all in their 30s now, it's just the things we did earlier. Like one of my girls said, Dad, when I saw you having your quiet time every day, I would go get down to go to the kitchen to get ready to go to school and prepare my lunch. She said, that really made an impact on me. And so they're having their quiet times. You know, I think most of them are. But just that relationship that how you invest early pays dividends down the road. I think the most powerful thing I did because I was was a pastor when they were born is apologize to them because they knew I wasn't perfect. I knew it. But the fact, I knew that and confessed to them when I messed up with them. I think that was important. And I learned from some other guys that periodically I would ask my girls, how am I doing as dad? And they say, Dad, you spank us, I hurt. I say, well, I mean for that to hurt. But other than that, how am I doing? And sometimes I say, Dad, sometimes you're too hard demanded on this. And I would have to evaluate that and make some changes. So, so I think, again, listening and talking is important. Discipline, I'll let Brenda talk more about that. But those are, from my perspective, some things about parenting. And I think also you you don't do it perfectly. I mean, you, you make mistakes. At least I make mistakes. One of the things that we did learn early on is that Those kids are different Mm. from each other. And even today, that still amazes me of how three kids raised by the same parents in the same house with the same rules are so different. And they really are. I mean, we have twins and they are different from each other. And so it's important to figure out those differences and relate to those kids in a way that they can understand Even when it comes to showing love, they receive love differently. And so to understand what each kid needs and wants and to be able to relate to them in their way. One of the things that Clarence mentioned is discipline. 
And I do think that's very important. I, and discipline looks different from kid to kid and from household to household. But I think it's important that kids understand that there are consequences to unacceptable behavior and, and to be careful not to tie that discipline with love, not to withhold that love or affection because they are, are being corrected for some behavior that needs to be addressed. And so to figure out how to do that, I'd say one more thing along those lines is that it is important for the parents, if there are two parents in the home or even not, to present a united front. I think it's confusing and unfair to the kids for one parent to be one way and the other parent to be another or to kids to feel like they can go to one parent and get what they want and and not from the other. I mean, that was something that we tried to be careful about. Mm. You know, if, if the kids went to dad to ask for something, his first question was, what did your mother say? Or if they came to me, I'm like, let me check with your dad on that for major decisions. And so they knew they couldn't play us against each other. And for sure, they were not going to come between the two of us. And so I think that's really important as we parent our kids. And let me just say one thing about the disciplines. Brenda talked about it. I found working with kids of really all races and pretty much all ages, when kids aren't disciplined, they don't feel loved. And that's the most amazing I've ever seen. When kids are disciplined, they feel loved. When kids aren't, they feel unloved and tend to act out. I would totally agree with that. And I think it's so neat that this morning I was reading in Hebrews 12 for my quiet time on God's discipline and then even some practical applications for our discipline and we won't cover all of that here, but I would encourage people if they want to study that more, Hebrews 12, I would recommend. I just love the encouragement from both of you. You're in the next season. You're ahead of us in our parenting journey. And I think what I'm gleaning from the two of you is don't grow weary, don't lose heart. And obviously we rely on the Lord for his strength, but to continue putting in the effort and these little years and beyond and that it will be fruitful. It will pay off. And so I guess even like fighting fatigue to make those memories. How do the two of you manage the demands of marriage, family, and ministry? I just learned from some mentors that the most important thing was God first, Brenda second, the girls third, and then the ministry. And when you get that out of whack, that creates chaos in the family. And I actually worked with some men where that was out of whack, where it was God first, the ministry, and then their family. And their kids really didn't care for Jesus because they always saw Jesus taking their dad away from them. And so they felt they were competing with Jesus for time for their dad. And so I think that's really important. And like I mentioned earlier, Brenda and I created a, a family calendar that had priority over our ministry calendar. And for example, we had a family mission statement. And so in that mission statement, one thing that I couldn't do if like on spring break, I had to be home. I couldn't travel during spring break. And so that was really important to us that we kept that. And Brenda was really great at, at us doing that. So it was, it was God first, Brenda second, the girls third, and then the ministry. And that just really, I mean, even when I was a pastor at church, I told them, I said, you know, if my family needs me and the church needs me, I'll be with my family. And they said it really, they, they appreciate that, but that was really important, I think. That is so helpful to hear examples of how you did put those priorities in order. I want to touch on one other topic that you've written about. How do you encourage parents to break the chain of pain as it relates to their own parenting journey? Well, in the book I co-authored with Dr. Jeff Shears, the book is called What All Dads Should Know. And what we realized is that a lot of dads were wounded unintentionally by their dads, and they passed on what we call this chain of pain. And so in the book, especially in the first couple of chapters, we have the dads evaluate, and a mother could do this as well, evaluate their relationship with their parents, what are the things that they parents did really well that they really appreciated. What are some things that parents did that they didn't think was good that they don't want to repeat with their children? And so if you have that chance to do a self-evaluation, I think it's important. And we ask a bunch of questions at the end of all our chapters that would help a father or a mother to go through that and see where they are. It doesn't guarantee, but it, it makes it less 
likely they're going to pass on that that woundedness they got from their parents onto their children. And then another thing we also do, I've done with a video series called The Father Wound, is actually tell dads and mothers can do it too, uh, how to make peace with their parents if they've been wounded by them, how to forgive their parents and work through that and communicate where their parents are still alive or their parents have deceased, how to bring closure to that. So I think that self-evaluation of how you were raised is really important as to what you want to pass on, what you don't want to pass on. I think identifying is important. We don't know what to change if we don't recognize what is it that you think needs to be broken, the pains, the chains that don't need to continue in your family, and then just be very intentional about doing differently. I love the intentionality behind all of that with the answer that you both presented. And this next topic encompasses all of who we are and what we do. So what are some key components to build a legacy you believe is pleasing to God? Putting God's priority and just following his biblical principles for the family, your spouse second, kids third, then the ministry or your career. But I think also as you invest in them early, you'll get dividends. Our legacy None of us parent perfectly, and we do the best we can. I think we had an option. There are some things I would do over, do differently. But I think the thing is try to be consistent, but realize you're not going to be perfect. So it's really about consistency, not perfection, and trying to honor God with that and then trust God with that. Yeah, and I think determine what that legacy should be. What is it that you want your kids to carry on? For me, Honesty, loyalty, integrity, and and before all of that, a desire to, to serve God is foremost in anything that I do. And I want that in my kids. I want them to do right because it's right, not for fear of getting caught. I, I want them to to love the Lord and do things that are pleasing to him because they're pleasing to him, not because I said so. And therefore, if I'm not around, they're going to know what God's word says and be able to to make those decisions on their own, not for fear of retribution from me or anything. And so I want them to live their own faith, to go forward in their lives. You're going to call that a legacy, whether I'm around or not, doing the things that are honoring and pleasing to the Lord. I try to model that in decisions that I'm making, in my conversations with them. And I think for them to see sometimes is better than hearing and to be able to encourage them in who they are as godly women and to be able to go forward in their own lives with that uh, knowledge. I love hearing you talk about this topic because I think it's motivating to make decisions today to do things with purpose, with the long-term goals in mind. And I think for me personally right now, I say that one of my top priorities or top goals is to tenderly plant seeds of faith in my children. But I love to think about that legacy that my husband and I are prayerfully trying to create with the Lord's help, of course, being reminded of that legacy and that hope and goal then motivates me to take action steps today to put that into practice. Well, as you're raising your kids, another thing I think is really important is the whole concept of they have choices, they make decisions, those decisions lead to consequences. And so choices, decisions, consequences. So one thing we really did try to do is help them to make good choices. So we try to present many opportunities to make decisions and, and mess up while they're at home. So when they got to college and away from us, they could make good decisions as, as young adults. I like that those little phrases can be easy to have them stick to us. And we said that we we're going to cover work and ministry as well. So professionally, how do you bring people together through diversity consulting? That's something that's really been part of my life. My first book was called Winning the Race to Unity. Is racial reconciliation really working? And I call my diversity training now. I've actually changed the title this year to a new book I'm doing. It's called Maximizing Difference. And I try to help people understand, particularly Christian organizations that I talk to, uh, how to discover God's gift to each other, which, which is his body. 
And then I just share a couple key components of, I think, four vital concepts for understanding how to maximize difference. And I talk about Jesus Christ, grace, and race. You know, kind of use the Good Samaritan to pull out principles there. The other principle I share is, is about relationship, respect, and power. As we build relationships, we get information, we process that information. And as we process that information, that changes our perspective. And once our perspective changes, then we begin to look for what I call transformational opportunities, you know, to share the gospel. And so what I really shared is really based on Acts, you know, uh, the early part of Acts, and you kind of start at home and go out. But I think these four vital truths or concepts really help us understand and embrace difference because God's made us all different. And I, and I think it's important we learn to embrace those differences. In Brenda, in our marriage, one of our wedding vows said we're better together for God's glory than we are apart. Where entire body of Christ is really better together for his glory than we are apart. But sometimes we don't realize how much we need each other. And so much of this new book that I'm working on is based on 1 Corinthians 12 and our spiritual gifts because it really emphasizes uh, unity, not so much union, but also interdependency. And so as I try and create safe places with organizations, as I've talked to them, like I say, Christian organizations also done stuff for the military. That's what we do. And when people see they need each other, you can take some of the fear out. Then they're more open to come together and learn from each other. And it's really it's really a spiritual journey. And I think God just uses the medium of race to get people together sometimes. So it's, it's really fun. And I, and I love it. Yes, and amen to all of that. I'm so grateful for all of your work. It sounds like you're pouring into this, and I can't wait to read it. So is that something that you're anticipating early in 2021 to release? Yes. Yeah, we're hoping this book, Maximizing Difference, will be released in, within the first quarter of 2021. Wonderful. Well, keep us updated with that. And this time has been incredible. And if people want to continue this conversation and learn more from both of you, where can they find you online and ideally support your ministry? Well, we would love that. Our website is just my name is Clarence, not Clarence, but Clarence Schuler. Last name is S-H-U-L-E-R. So it's ClarenceShuler.com. And if they go there, there's a free video series called Common Mistakes Most Couples Make. So whether they're dating or marriage, they get free videos, probably think 13 free videos. So I'd encourage them to go to the website and they can also find our books and other, th other free videos we have on the website as well about relationships. Wonderful. We will link to all of that in both our show notes and our resources tab. And you both may already be aware we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge. So as my final question for both of you today, what is your savvy sauce? For us, it's important to serve each other without an agenda, without wanting something in return, putting the other person first, seeking God's wisdom in the way we do life. If we can approach with a non-selfish attitude, then that's a sauce that's going to take us far in a good relationship. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you both spending your morning with me. You've devoted decades to this work, and I recognize how fortunate I am to glean so many fresh insights from our time together, even through the correspondence before when we were getting to know each other before we got to press record today. I could sense the love and devotion between the two of you, and it made me smile every time. So thank you for both being my guests. Well, thanks for having us. We really enjoyed that, and we'd love to stay in touch with you even after this. Uh, I would love that as well. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death, and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. 
This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.